invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13, the Gospel of Luke chapter 13 this morning. Look down with me into verse 18. If you remember from a few weeks ago, the previous section of Luke 13, Jesus has been in the synagogue and He's been teaching. And in verse 11, He sees a woman who has had a a demonic influence on her life. Uh, In verse 11, it's described as a disabling spirit. That spirit's been with her for 18 years. Her problem is that she's bent over, couldn't fully straighten herself. In verse 12, Jesus heals her. Verse 13, laying His hands on her and speaking to her. Immediately, she's made straight. She glorifies God. The rulers stand up against Him and condemn Him and the people. And in verse 17, Jesus, verse 16, Jesus sets them straight. Verse 15, 16, He sets them straight. Verse 17, all these things, uh, after He said them all, all His adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by Him. This is the context where we find ourselves this morning in Luke 13, verse 18. And that same situation, the same scenery, the same context, the same conversation is happening. And as a result of what has happened, Jesus is going to engage in this teaching that we find in verse 18, 19, 20, and 21. The teaching on the kingdom of God. He's clarifying what uh, this ruler of the synagogue in verse 15 that he described as a hypocrite. He's clarifying what that guy didn't get. What the what the kingdom of God is really about and what really matters to God. Look with me in Luke chapter 13, verse 18. Luke reports about our Lord and he says, He, Jesus, said, therefore, again as a, as a result of what has happened in verses 10-17, through 17, He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? That's the question. It's a very important question, significant question, eternal question, one that we would do well to meditate upon. So what is the kingdom of God like, he says, and to what shall I compare it? That's what we find taking place today in in the text. We're dealing with the subject matter of the kingdom of God by way of comparison verse 19 the first comparison jesus says it is like a grain of mustard seed not many grains singular a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches Verse 20, and again Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? A different comparison, verse 21, it is like leaven, or your Bible may say yeast, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Very interesting teaching on such an important subject, isn't it? But it's a very precise and deliberate teaching of our Lord. Now I want to stop and consider before we get into the actual text the importance of the kingdom of God. And, and maybe talk a little bit of, of what it is. If you remember back in 
Luke chapter 11. I don't know how long it's been since we were there. Maybe months, maybe a year. I don't know. Luke chapter 11, verse 2. The Lord's teaching His disciples how to pray. And in that prayer, we find things that are obviously important to God as we come before Him in in communion and in prayer. And He says in in verse 2, When you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. Well, just by being in the prayer, we can discern the importance of God's kingdom. It's important enough to God and important enough to Christ that He says, when you pray and and consider the things that you ought to be praying for, this is something that's important enough to, to have on your heart and on your mind. But then if we want to take it a little bit further, we can look by... Uh, how how often it appears or, or how quickly it appears in the Lord's Prayer. In its specific location. Jesus says, when you pray, I want you first to consider the glory and magnitude and splendor of God. And then directly following that, be concerned about His kingdom. Now, if you remember back when we covered this, and you should, I know your memory's great, If you remember back when we covered Luke chapter 11, we talked about what does it mean when Jesus is saying, pray that your kingdom come. In fact, all the records of the Lord's prayer throughout the Gospels, uh, the three, the the synoptics that covering Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this phrase, your kingdom come. So what is Christ saying? He says you ought to be concerned as Christians with the rule and the reign and the lordship and the government of God being established on this earth. We live in a wicked world, don't we? It doesn't take long to realize that. And I don't have to spend much time describing how wicked of a world we live in. Everything in creation because of sin is broken. Creation's broken. It's yearning, Paul says, for the day of Christ's return. Humanity's broken. This week on Facebook, I added, um, or didn't add, but I began following uh, News Channel 9 and News Channel 4, mainly so I could keep up with the weather. It's tornado season here. I didn't realize how inundated I would be with negative articles of wickedness in the world. At every turn and at, a, at every moment, we find evil. It's no secret. And Christ says, you ought to be praying that the principles of God be established here now. That the morals of God be established here. That the guidelines of God be established here. That the principles of God be established here. That His kingdom would reign here and now. That should be our hearts, right? All the social initiatives that we encounter in the world, that those are good and fine and helpful. And all the political movements of trying to, trying to restore a, a right way of viewing morality and sexuality and abortion and divorce and all those things, that's all, that's all good. But our concern as Christians is that not just we would have a decent moral world, but that the kingdom of God would be here among us and influence the world around us. This subject matter is so important that Christ says, when you pray, you ought to be concerned about it that the rule and reign and dominion of Christ would take hold here among us. Going on to consider its importance, some and many would say that it is actually the, the kingdom 
of God is actually the central theme of the whole New Testament. I would somewhat agree with that statement. I do think most of everything we encounter and discuss in the New Testament falls under this umbrella of the Kingdom of God. Christ is ushering in here in the New Covenant the Kingdom of God. He's bringing it about. And in fact, the whole entire second coming of Christ is for the purpose of establishing the Kingdom of God. From the moment Christ was born and and lived His life and died on the cross and resurrected and ascended back, we've been waiting for the consummation of the kingdom, the second coming, where Christ will finally establish in totality His rule and reign and throne upon this earth. The Gospel is for that initiative. The whole New Testament is teaching us how to live as citizens of a new kingdom, right? We're sojourners now in this land. This used to be our home and then we met Christ and now we're aliens. It's so important that God says in the Bible that we actually transfer our citizenship to a new country. A far better country. A new kingdom. Again, this kingdom, let's define it what it is. It is the rule and reign and lordship of Christ. Now, don't hear me wrong. The rule and reign and lordship of Christ is not in question, nor is it in doubt. What we mean by this and the kingdom of the Lord coming is that the rule and reign and lordship of Christ would be recognized and submitted to by the world. Because the kingdom hasn't come in its full consummation doesn't mean Christ isn't Lord. He is Lord today, whether you want to believe that or not. And He rules and He reigns today and has dominion over creation today whether we want to admit that or not. But the coming of the kingdom of Christ is to say, Lord, we're ready for Your Lordship to be realized. We're ready for Your rule to be realized because Lord, when Your rule is finally realized, evil gets pushed away. And everything that opposes You gets pushed away. And the enemy gets crushed under your feet, under our feet, and dealt with once for all. That's what we mean when we say, your kingdom come and we pray this. And when the New Testament talks of the kingdom of God coming, it means, Lord, we want you to set up your throne and execute your righteous judgment and righteous justice and rule in this land and do away with ungodliness. In fact, God, we pray your kingdom come in our hearts and do away with the wickedness in me. The king over my life. The kingdom of God. It's not something we just encounter in the Scriptures in the New Testament as this uh, principle-oriented or idealistic uh, abstract concept. In fact, it's it's the full and clear establishment of the new heaven and new earth. Where Jesus, you reign uncontended. And everything that's wrong with the world's finally dealt with. It's the new Eden, isn't it? Well then, considering its importance even in a personal aspect, that's just kind of an overview, quick, broad, general run-through of of the kingdom of God and considering it. When Jesus... He also means it in a personal application. And so when Jesus tells us to pray for your kingdom come, that also means in our lives, that also means is what I've hinted at, God, let your precepts and standards 
govern my life. As Christians, the kingdom of God is so important to us because now it is the banner and law that we live under. Yes, we may be Americans, or we may have Taiwanese students here during the school year, and we may be Oklahomans, but of so much more significance, we are children of the kingdom. Citizens of a far greater country, again, like I said. And so the kingdom of God is important because it's now what governs every aspect of our life. We live by the standards set by the king. The world no longer informs how we do business or how we spend our money or how we spend our time. The world no longer informs how we define success or integrity or purity or goodness or morality. The world has no bearing upon our lives in those regards. If you're looking for the definition of goodness, you don't turn on the news. We look to Christ. Because now we're citizens of a different country and a different kingdom. It now informs us. It now governs us. It now directs us. We live under the subjection of our new king. Well, that's the subject matter we're dealing with here in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. This glorious and grand subject of the kingdom of God that we do want to be here, that we hope for and look forward to in the coming of Christ, and that we try to live in subjection to even now today. And this is what Jesus is teaching on. Now, he uses two comparisons, two very different comparisons. To help teach what the kingdom of God is like. But before we get into each one of them, he mentions the mustard seed and the the leaven, and that's what we'll look at respectively. I want to highlight a few things that both of them have in common together. Although very different, and we need to and will focus on their differences, there are a few things they have in common. First, they both deal with growth. Something small becoming bigger. Or something small affecting something bigger. So in both comparisons here, we go from tiny to great. Both comparisons have uh, an action-oriented mindset with them. They deal with something that must be done. Now, don't you find this intriguing that in both of them, verse 19, a man has to plant the seed, And a woman, in verse 21, has to hide the leaven in the flour. That tells us something. First, it tells us that the kingdom of God works from the inside out. But also, that action is required to get it from the outside to the end. So it's a a power that works from the inside out on the heart, meaning your behavior change will not change your heart. Your heart changes your behavior, for example. But it's an, it's an action that requires getting it from the outside to the inside. In other words, it, humbly coming to Christ in faith, repenting of sin and confessing Him as Lord. I find it also interesting that in, in both of these comparisons combined, a man and a woman is present. Jesus is, is not being gender neutral here. He's encompassing both. A man plants, a, a woman hides. 
The kingdom can't be neglected by either of us. In both comparisons, they both affect their surroundings. This mustard seed is going to grow up, get big, house birds. This leaven that's put into the flour, the yeast that's put in the flour, is actually going to make it something entirely different. Both of them, in both comparisons, both take time. They're not instant. Isn't that interesting? As we're going to consider the power and grandeur of the kingdom, we also have to understand that at the moment of salvation, we're not instantaneously conformed to our kingdom. It takes time. Just like a mustard seed doesn't grow overnight and yeast doesn't immediately change a lump of dough. Both of them, finally, symbolize life. This seed growing, germinating and growing and housing life and giving way to new life as nests hold baby birds and baby birds grow and there's new life. But even the yeast, metaphorically, gives life to a lump of dough, making it something it couldn't be otherwise. So there's several common things between these two comparisons that we can learn about the kingdom of God even in in a general understanding. It's a kingdom of growth. It's a kingdom of action. It's a kingdom that is for men and women. It's a kingdom that affects its surroundings. It's a kingdom that takes time, which we use the word sanctification. It's a kingdom of life. It's beautiful. But let's consider each each comparison individually now because that's where we really begin to glean a lot. Christ used two different comparisons for a reason, right? The first one, verse 19, is a mustard seed. Mustard seed. The kingdom is like, according to Christ, a grain of mustard seed. Which, by the way, if anybody in the universe is going to describe what the kingdom of God is like, it's Christ. Here's the King telling us, even today speaking to us through His Word and His Spirit, telling us what His kingdom is like. So his, his word here is eternally important and significant to the text, of, of course, but pointing that out. It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew, it becomes a tree, the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now Matthew records this same um, account, the same teaching in chapter 13 as well of his gospel. He adds a different phrase. He adds a phrase in there. Talking about the mustard seed, he says, actually, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. That's his addition. Luke omits that phrase. And he does it for good reason. Matthew, in his account, is primarily focused on the transformation that takes place as the seed, the smallest of all seeds, grows into something different. Luke, on the other hand, is more concerned, and this may be splitting hairs and semantics for some of us, but Luke is more concerned with the end result. What's the end result of the plant like? Not necessarily the transformation from the small seed to the plant, but but the plant itself is Luke's focus. Now, the mustard seed is actually not the smallest of all seeds in botany, as we deal with all the seeds in the universe. 
It is, though, however, the smallest of all seeds in dealing with crops. And that's exactly what kind of a seed it is. Luke wants us to see the formation of this plant. That it's a large plant. In fact, he's going to use the term, it grew and became a tree. Typically, during the time and in the location, uh, the mustard seed would grow into, not necessarily a tree, but more in the formation of a bush, about 15 feet high, which could be classified as a small tree. It was wide, had lots of leaves and sticks, again, looking more like a bush. I thought about this a lot because some of you know I like to plant. Uh, I, I like getting out in the flower bed and adding new things and sometimes taking things away. And I mean, don't come look at my flower bed now. You would never believe that. But I do enjoy getting out there on my day off and working in the dirt with my hands. And, and I love looking at flowers. We plant, or I plant a lot of rose bushes. I love the colors. I love the flower petals, all these things. I've dealt with seeds and bushes a lot. And I'm actually, though I love it, not very good at it. I'm one of those guys that sometimes gets a wild hair, and it drives Jamie crazy. But I get a wild hair and think, I don't want to buy the plant that's pre-grown. I want to buy the package of seeds and try to start you know, from scratch and grow it myself. I have never succeeded. <laughs> but I try. And you get this little package. You guys know, you go to the store, you get this little package, you open it up, and there's just these little tiny things in there. Almost like little dust particles. And you, you lick your finger, stick it in there, and out comes a whole bunch of seeds. Or you just dump it all in your hand and they go everywhere. That's typically what happens with me. But I've always been amazed and marveled at those tiny seeds that produce such beautiful flowers. They are very little. And yet, out comes these Gorgeous, in my opinion, plants, greeneries and bright colors and different shapes. And they bloom at different times of the year and, and all of those things that most of us know. Now, I have to confess, there have been more than a few times. And in fact, I'm currently going through this situation where I planted a seed. I didn't really know what it was. And sometimes I just tell Jamie as I'm watering the flowers, I don't know what that is, but I'm curious to see what it's going to be. And there's been several times where I've planted a seed or, or a plant, and it turns out to be very large and much more significant for, for the space I put it in. And then I have to dig it up and put it somewhere else on the property. In fact, that's all I've done this year is digging up plants that were too big for where I put them and tried to move them elsewhere well if you had picked up a mustard seed and didn't know what you had you would think it's just going to produce something small maybe some flower plant or something of that sort you would have no concept if you didn't know any better of this 15 foot plant tree coming forth that's because the size of the mustard seed. I, I do want to talk a little bit about that because I'm fascinated with it as well. A mustard seed is so small that if you took a penny and put the mustard seed on the penny, 
it wouldn't even fully cover Abraham Lincoln's nose. It's tiny. And yet, you put it in the soil and out comes this huge tree. It would be one of those plants that I would realize this is growing way bigger than I thought. I've got to dig it up and move it. You could lose it in the dirt and never find it again until it grew. That's what Luke wants us to understand. It becomes something that you wouldn't have imagined. It becomes something established and strong and sturdy and really, once full grown, somewhat immovable. It's something that comes becomes secure. And if you notice in Jesus' Jesus's analogy in, in verse 19, it's so sturdy and so strong that the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. Now that's significant, don't gloss over, because the birds aren't just resting in its branches. I've seen birds rest on some of my plants that I thought, there's no way that plant is going to support the weight of that bird. We had a, a cardinal one time that was the size of a softball. That guy was fat. But here is this plant where birds aren't just resting. They're building nests. Nests that are going to be sturdy and strong enough to hold their eggs. And them sitting on their eggs and hatching their eggs. And then the, the little birdies working around and eating worms and picking at things. I mean, we're talking... A plant of substance, right? Something birds can dwell in. We have a big silver maple tree in our yard, and sometimes I think if that bird big enough sits on its branches, it's going to break. But here's a plant. Jesus says, birds of the air made their nest in its branches. This is something of substance. Something of strength. Something of security. In fact, it's big enough, it's wide enough, it's strong enough, it's tall enough that birds feel safe enough to have their little ones in it. I do find it rather strange that Christ compares the kingdom of God and all of its glory with a mustard seed and a mustard tree. Out of all the metaphors and comparisons that he uses, I, I, I have wondered why this one. But our Lord is very deliberate, isn't He? And very precise. Why a mustard seed? The, the comparison between the two is so perfect. Let me point out real quick just three things from the mustard seed and its comparison to the kingdom of God. Knowing how big the mustard seed gets... How secure and sturdy and strong and established it is. Let me make these three observations about the kingdom of God in association with it. There, there could be more, but I want to make three. Number one, the kingdom of God, it might be hidden from some, but it will always be undeniable later. Just as a mustard seed might be hidden from some people, when it's fully grown, it's undeniable in its presence. You could walk up to somebody with a mustard seed in your hand and they would never know it. In fact, you would probably forget that you had it. You can plant a mustard seed in a spot and its seed is its not a bulb, it's so small, so insignificant 
that nobody would ever know that it's there. But one day it's going to grow and its presence will be undeniable. So it is with the kingdom of God. To some people, it's tiny, it's small, it's hidden, it's unnoticeable. They have no clue about it. I saw our neighbor had a little girl across the street last night. She was out playing. It was a beautiful night. She can't be any, any older than 18 months. And she's running up and down the driveway. And they backed her, They have a long driveway, backed their car out to the end by the road so she can't get to the road. She had this whole driveway to play in, but of course, she wants to play in the road. She was so distracted by wanting to get out in the road and in the street and play that she totally neglected all that she had to play with in the driveway. This huge space of concrete with all these toys and all these balls and, and all this fun that she could have been having. The world is so like that. Distracted by dangerous things like sin to the point that they don't notice the mustard seed of the kingdom. To some people, unfortunately, it is hidden. And it certainly does start out hidden as we consider Christ ushering in the kingdom through the new covenant. It starts off very small. Christ begins with a small band of 12 disciples and a few hundred followers. Comparatively to Israel and the rest of the world, that's a tiny group of people to start the kingdom of God. But those small people, that small group, will eventually begin to share the gospel. Acts 2, they'll be empowered uh, and, and take forth this message and just like the mustard seed, sure enough, the kingdom will grow. Peter pe- preaches this awesome sermon in Acts 2 and 3,000 people believe and are saved. And it's like that all the way through Acts. It's like that even in parts of the world today. The world as a whole thinks has no clue and inclination of the kingdom of God and yet in places like Southeast Asia and the Middle East, The gospel is actually flourishing in hostility. Today, the kingdom is woefully hidden from some. But also like the mustard seed at Christ's second coming and His consummation of the kingdom, He will reveal once and for all the undeniable reality of the grandeur and influence and size of His kingdom. People may be able to neglect it and ignore it and deny it today, but it will be totally unmistakable later. It will grow right into their face and they will not be able to ignore it any longer. That should be comforting to us. Because there are times in the world we live in, we wonder, where's the kingdom of God? And all the wickedness that we see, and all the evil that we endure, and all the pain that we suffer through, where's the kingdom of God? If God is in control, and if God is ruling, if God is reigning, where is His power? Where is His goodness? Where is His mercy? Where is His help? And where is His aid? Take comfort, church, because one day it will be undeniable. Undeniable. For some of us now, by God's grace, it's undeniable. 
We know the power of our king's kingdom, don't we? Because we're citizens of it. We ought to be concerned with those who aren't citizens of it, praying fervently and working diligently that they might realize the reality of God's kingdom. Second thing, and very closely associated, and I do want to breeze through this, the kingdom of God may start off slowly, but it will certainly reach its fullness. It's going to be hidden from some and undeniable from later, and then very closely associated like that. It's going to start off slow and reach fullness completely. As we talked about earlier, the growth of the mustard seed is not instant. It's slow, and neither is the kingdom of God. In fact, even the disciples doubted. Several times they question. John and James had a complete false idea of what it was. Judas misunderstood it the most. And even at Christ's death, they're questioning what, what now? They think the kingdom has failed until they realize His resurrection. The truth is that even in their doubts and confusions, the kingdom was still at work. It was still growing. And it's true for us today too. We may not always see its growth. We may not always see its advancement. We may not always get to witness its expansion. Last year at Denver, with millions of people around us in that city, we were hoping to see conversions. And we had no one that was interested in the Gospel. And yet... In the last year, the church plant has grown. The kingdom is at work. And it is advancing in the world. In fact, we might even be able to say that the comparison of the mustard seed is a prophecy of growth. It's a promise of growth. Even though we don't see the the seed germinating under the soil and and soaking up water and nutrients, it is. And and even though we might not see the, the kingdom Uh, taking strides in the world, the truth is, it is. And it will endure, and it will grow, and it will be established, and it will be fruition. The comparison of a mustard seed is a comparison of promise. The kingdom will be established. And that's because the king of the kingdom will not be vanquished, will he? His mission will not be thwarted. His conquests will not be stopped. He will not overcome. He will not expire. His dynasty will never come to an end. The truth is, Jesus will conquer each and every enemy of His. And again, the kingdom that is His, the dominion that is His, will most certainly be established as certain as Jesus is God. The kingdom will be established. And His rule and His reign and His splendor and His glory will be unmistakable, church. That's important for us again when we evangelize. And that's important for us again when it seems that evil is winning in the world. We can take hope and confidence that the kingdom, though not always visible, is advancing. It's growing. Thirdly, and this is the main point most importantly, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of strength and security. 
And I think that's what Luke gets at mostly in this comparison. For the birds of the air to take rest there, and not just rest, but build their nest there, means they dwell in safety. They dwell in safety. Many people will take refuge in the strength of God's kingdom and that kingdom will not be over, overdone. Nor will it wear out. The kingdom is sturdy like the mustard seed. It's strong in its capabilities. Hebrews chapter 12, I do want to read this text talking about the kingdom of God. I won't read it all, but if you look in verse... 18 through 29 of Hebrews 12, you get the, f- the fuller picture of what's being said. If you start in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, kind of picking up in the middle, it says, At that time, his voice, Jesus, shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27, the author explains this. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, one day God's going to shake away things that can be shaken away so that things that won't be shaken away will be visible and real. Verse 28, he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as the mustard seed will grow and be sturdy and established and strong and secure, so is our citizenship in a country that will never be overrun by its enemies. In fact, even in the previous verses of Luke chapter 13, When this woman is healed by Christ in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 13, is that not a clear picture of the strength of the kingdom? It's the inbreaking of the kingdom into this world and into this woman's life and it's overcoming not just a a physical illness, but as this text describes, a disabling spirit. Christ's kingdom and Christ as the king is strong enough to overcome evil We have a kingdom that will never cease in overcoming evil. Psalm chapter 1, the end of that psalm, doesn't just say the wicked will perish, it says the way of the wicked will perish. The way of evil will be done away with at the consummation of Christ's kingdom. We're not going to cover 11 this morning, although I'd like to. I do want to leave you with one final thought about the mustard seed. There are some Old Testament passages that use this very same language that Jesus is using. When He says the birds of the air made their nest in its branches, we find that in several places. Ezekiel, two times in Ezekiel, one time in Daniel, I believe Daniel chapter 4. And and in those times, it references the birds of the air being the nations of the earth. And specifically Gentile nations. Now some... Uh, will make a very hard and stern connection uh, to Jesus' statement there to those other Old Testament statements. And they will say, without a doubt, absolutely, this is what Christ is referencing. I'm not quite there. He may or may not be. I think the major point is the strength and sturdiness of the kingdom that comes from 
even such a small beginning as a mustard seed. But in case, if, if it is the case that Christ is making that connection, we do see something beautiful here. The kingdom possesses such abundance of resources and room, and it is so strong that all the nations can take refuge there. That all the tribes can find security and life there and protection, and a future, and hope. It's a kingdom that welcomes everybody. If it is true that Christ is referencing here with the birds, all the nations, it means ethnicity is not an issue in the kingdom of God. It transcends all economic statuses, and social statuses, and and, uh, not religious statuses, uh, but it can, can convert all people from other religions. It transcends all other nationalities. It brings in people who are entirely different. Just like this church, our church, is full of people entirely different, yet united together in Christ, so will the kingdom of God be. And I would leave you with this. Why? Why, can all the, why are all these things true about the kingdom? That it will reach its fullness. That it is advancing even when we can't see it. That it's strong and it's sturdy. And, and strong enough to take in all the nations. Why is that true of the kingdom of God? It's because of the king of that kingdom. Every kingdom, every dominion, is only as glorious and is only as strong as its king. We have a king who has the grace and the mercy and the strength and the love and the patience and the compassion and the kindness and the sufficient work of His atonement that can welcome in all nations. All unbelievers. It doesn't matter. In fact, that's the whole point of the leaven comparison. It doesn't matter how wicked you are. Christ has enough grace to change your heart. It's a glorious kingdom with grandeur and power and influence and splendor all because those things are true of its king. And so everything good we know about the kingdom and every way that the kingdom informs our life, the governing principles of God inform our life, we take great joy and comfort in because all those things flow directly from the king. And if we are citizens of this kingdom, we are subjects of that king. And what a glorious king to serve and belong to. A true citizenship of this kingdom, and this is really by way of application for your reflection, true citizenship of that kingdom means possessing a power that, like that kingdom that is strong and sustainable means possessing a comfort that's unwavering and a hope that is enduring. And what kind of power am I talking about? Power to, to attack all demonic forces and start casting out demons left and right? That's not what I'm talking about. It's the power to become holy. And the power to renounce ungodliness and become godly. The power to have victory over sin and your flesh and be more like Christ and less like you. If you're a Christian and belong to that kingdom, that power is in you.
because that king is in you. And you must ask, is that power within me? Do I belong to that kingdom? Self-reflection means, in regards to this kingdom, wondering, do I dwell there securely? Am I legitimately a citizen there? The good news here is, if you realize that you are not a citizen of that kingdom, the king is willing to make you one. Again, that's part of the leaven we'll talk about. Uh, this is the, a king and a kingdom that makes its enemies, its saints, its children. Jesus is willing to do that. Today is the day of salvation. If you're an unbeliever this morning, please hear me. Come be saved by the king. If you're on the outside of the kingdom, if you're in the ranks of the enemy, if you're in the desert lands, wandering like a nomad, a spiritual pilgrim, trying to find food and water, come into the kingdom through the King, Jesus Christ, and be saved. If you are a citizen of this kingdom, you are a Christian, born again by the grace of Christ, let's live as citizens of this kingdom. Taking hope and comfort and the strength that our Lord provides. And in the governing principles of the kingdom we now belong to. And in the certainty and surety of the king, kingdom being established here by the king. One day, Christ will come and vanquish all his enemies. And rule in the new heaven and the new earth. And we'll get to enjoy that forever. Let's live in light of that eternity and that, that hope. Lord, I thank you for your most glorious word. Because it tells us. What lies ahead for us? It tells us who you are. Everything that we learn, Lord, about your kingdom, we learn about you. Everything we see that is good about our heavenly home comes from your hands. We thank you for being a good and glorious king. We thank you for preparing a place for us, a kingdom that can never be shaken kingdom that is strong and sturdy and, and rooted deeply in your power and sustainability. I pray that we would make sure that we belong to this kingdom. And I pray, O oh God, that we would live worthy of the gospel, worthy of our King, servants for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.